12.30 on the dot, so we'll go ahead and get started. Okay. You guys had a good lunch. Welcome to our final Bruce Chris Bible study lunch of the year. Um, it's been pretty cool going through an entire book of the Bible. I don't know if a number of you have done this before, but that's, uh, like we say every week, that's how we want to encourage you to read and study scripture, is going through book by book, um, getting the context rather than kicking out passages here and there. So today, as you can tell, there's a luncheon next door. Uh, so there's going to be a little bit of background ambient noise. I don't know how well this will pick up on the camera for those of you watching at home. But bear with it. It's the holiday season, and so people are festive. Um, quick housekeeping reminder. Uh, if you enjoy the food, we have a donations bucket here. I always encourage people to tip what you think it's worth. Or if you want to bless the servers in the back, it goes directly to them. We don't get any of it. I don't get any of it. Ruth's Chris doesn't get any of it. Um, and also, as we pick up in the new year, continue to invite people. Continue to bring your friends, coworkers, because this is the goal of this, as Jeff said, the owner has been to be an outreach to this community, to provide a place where people can come on a Tuesday, get a free lunch, meet some people, make some friends, and get to hear from Scripture itself, uh, and, and then to go back to their work, uh, you know, a little bit filled up for the day, a little more empowered. So that's what our goal is. We are finishing Exodus. We've looked at, we've gone through the whole book. We ended last week looking at chapter 36 and how after all of this, God has brought them, Israel, out of slavery to Mount Sinai, where he then revealed himself. He's revealed his covenant to them. He's made a binding agreement with this people group from the family of a guy named Abraham, who hundreds of years before, God had said, through your offspring, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Now the purpose of that call, this is back in Genesis, when we were studying Genesis, the purpose of God's calling Abraham was always for the benefit of the nations. This is something that Christians get twisted sometimes. That God didn't call Abraham so that he could have a, a special group of people that are his and, and literally to hell with everybody else. God didn't do that. The plan was, I'm going to make a promise with Abraham. And his offspring, his seed, and the text uses that word seed, which is a collective singular for offspring, but it literally means seed, like you put it into the ground. Through his seed, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. All the nations of the earth that had been separated, that had gone astray from God in Genesis 1 through 11. And the, the gulf, the distance that had been created because of human sin and rebellion throughout all of human history. God steps into that in Genesis 12 and he says, I'm going to call a particular people. And they are going to be the vehicle through which... I rescue the world. And that's the story that unfolds in Genesis. It begins with a family. And this family, then, by the time we started Exodus, had been in Egypt in slavery for 400 years. They had become a nation. And so the family of the man, Israel, had become the people, the Israelites, the tribes. They were enslaved for 400 years. 
in Egypt. God had promised back in Genesis 15, after 400 years, I'm going to bring you out of slavery, judging the nation that had oppressed you for four centuries, longer than America's been a country, they were slaves. Judging that nation, which is Egypt, at the same time bringing you into this land that I originally promised to Abraham, and at, this, at, at the same time as that, judging those nations that had waited for four centuries, that God had allowed them to continue, allowed their wickedness to fill up, giving them chance to repent, giving them time until it got to a point where it was the, the, the wickedness, it was time for judgment. And God had sovereignly ordered the world so that at the time of Israel's liberation, that the Canaanites and only the Canaanites, the specific Canaanites, God never gave carte blanche for Israel to go in and just take out anybody that they wanted. He said, I'm sending you against these particular people. And that's the goal, out of Egypt into Canaan. But between those two, there's a stop. And the stop is at, is at this mountain, Mount Sinai, where God had originally spoken to one of those Israelites, a guy named Moses, and said, you're going to be the one who leads these people out. So that's what Exodus is. Big picture. Exodus is the unfolding of that. It begins with this call of Moses. And then we see Moses being equipped for 40 years of being a shepherd in the wilderness. He's equipped. He's brought into a position where he can then lead the people through the patience needed to be a shepherd. He's brought them out. They come to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God himself comes down on the mountain and reveals himself to Israel, to his people, in the form of this overwhelming cloud, fire, lightning, thunder, whatever, whatever, this theophany as we call it. And he says, I'm bringing you out of slavery to one God or one person, Pharaoh, who claimed himself to be a God. I'm bringing you under the service of a new master, me, the only one who has the right to be a master, which is God of all creation. So he brings him out and he does what in the ancient Near East was perfectly normal when a king liberated a people, when a king freed a people, when a king did something good for a people, he would make a covenant with them. And it was a binding contract. We have copies of these from the ancient Near East. This is called a suzerainty treaty because it was made between an ancient Near East king, which is a suzerain, and a vassal, which is the lesser power. And the suzerain would make a treaty with the vassal. And the treaty had a structure. It would begin with recounting the things that the king had done for his people, all the good deeds. Then it would give stipulations. These are what you're going to do now that you're my loyal vassal. This is the tribute you'll pay me. This is how you'll worship my gods. This is the uh, crops that you'll bring in and, and give to us. This is There were these arrangements that were made. And then there would be promises of blessing. The suzerain would say, if you do this, if you keep my treaty, I will protect you from enemies, I'll build you roads, I'll give you infrastructure, I'll pray to our gods to give you crop abundance, all of this stuff, it would be a two-way agreement. So they would make this covenant, then at the end there would be a, a strict warning, but if you break this agreement, then, and all of these curses would be laid on you know, your crops will be barren, your women and children will rot in the sun, your animals will eat your bodies, I mean, they 
And the point was that the people and the suzerain were entering into this agreement where they were binding themselves to one another in covenant. Like when we do a contract today and you sign the contract. Only it was much more significant because it was spiritual and legal at the same time. This is the world of the ancient Near East. This is what happened in the ancient Near East. It was normal for the period of the time. So, when God brings his people out, God, the great suzerain, the true suzerain, the true king of kings, brings his people out and binds himself to them, he does so with a treaty. But it's not like these earthly treaties. It's a treaty between the God of the universe and the people of Israel. And so he's saying, and if you read through, and that's what we've been reading in Exodus, is the beginning of this treaty. He starts off with, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought you out of the house of slavery. The historical prologue. Walk in my commandments. Obey me. Worship me. Do these things. If you do, I will bless you. I will protect you from your enemies. I will make sure you get the rains in season. I will make your crops overflowing. All of these promises that he makes. And then the Israelites three times said, everything the Lord has commanded, we will do. Three times in Exodus, after chapter 20, between that and chapter 31. And then in chapter 32, what did they do? Completely rebelled on it. Moses is going for 40 days, and they start to get antsy. And they say, well, we've, we've, we've got to have a God to worship. And in Egypt, all we did was, you know, the gods were all visible. You had an idol. You made an image, you bowed to the image, you honored the image, and that was a way of incurring the God's favor. And in Canaan, that's what they do as well. So we need to do that. So they created a God in the image of what they knew to be something holy and divine, which is, in their instance, this was a cow, a golden bull. And it was filled with symbolism. In the ancient Near East, the bull represented fertility. It represented agriculture. It represented strength. It represented might. It was seen as the mount upon which the gods ride. If you go to India, I go to India every year and, and to teach. And this year, we'll go back in November. But even in India today, the bull is sacred. It's considered the mount of Shiva. The god Shiva rides upon the bull. So if you're a shopkeeper in India and you have some stuff in front of your shop, some trash, starts eating it or starts rooting through your trash, that's considered the blessing of the gods on your shop. So what do you think that encourages shop owners to do? Put their trash out front. So you go and there's all these trash everywhere. It's because of the idea of the gods will come and bless me because the bull is considered a sacred. That's why they don't eat beef. Because it's gonna, there's all of these ways. These are all vestiges and remnants of an ancient desire among humanity to have a God that they can in some way interact with and that they can know that this God is, is, is on my side. And so humans throughout all human history, they would do things like offering sacrifices and they would say, what's the best thing I can give? Because if the gods see that I'm really serious about giving to them, then maybe they'll give back to me in return. So I'll offer some of my animals, some of my livestock. Well, then I'll offer the best of my livestock. Well, then it became, I'll offer the most precious thing to me, which would be my firstborn child. And so in the Canaanites' religions, there was child sacrifice in times of famine, in times of the natural disaster, in times of economic downturn. There would be this offering, this, this actual killing of their children in order to get the attention of the gods 
who were busy cavorting up in the heavenlies so that they would somehow bring blessing to the people. Into that culture, Yahweh steps in. God himself steps in and says, that is not how it works. Yes, the desire to give to me in terms of sacrifice is a true desire. But I don't need your goods. I need your heart. And so the giving of the sacrifices that God instills, the things like tithing and first fruits and all of the things that we're going to read about next year in Leviticus, he says, bring those to me, but those are outward symbols of your heart being brought to me. And it's a trust thing where you are trusting me that if you give symbolically the best of your produce to me, that I will ensure that you have what you need. It's a very tangible way for the people to experience this universal human longing that's encapsulated in the sacrificial system, but in a specific way that God himself had desired and had appointed. And so he spends all of these chapters that we were looking at last week and that we're, that we're getting to the end of today, showing them how to create this little, um, this little system of holiness that's known as the tabernacle. So he gives them the instruction, this is how you're going to relate to me. And we saw that Mount Sinai was represented on earth by the tabernacle. Mount Sinai where God dwelled in the heavenlies and the clouds and the glory and all of that. And only Moses could go to the top. The other elders waited a little bit further down, the other people waited a little further down, and then the rest of the people waited at the base says that is going to represent my holiness through you wherever you go. You're not going to stay at Mount Sinai. You're going to go to Canaan and I'm going to go with you. So they build this tabernacle. God has these detailed instructions and there's so much symbolism in it. And we looked at some of it over the past weeks. If you missed that, catch the video or the podcast on the website and you can see the symbolism of things like the priestly garments, the bread of the presence, the menorah, Stand, even the curtains with the cherubim woven into it, how it all has resonances of Eden, what was lost in the garden through sin. God is stepping in to restore through a right relationship into an Israel who had been surrounded by paganism for four centuries. So he's leading them out of the world that they had known of pagan worship and leading them into a worship of him that would be in spirit and in truth. The Old Testament, what we're reading in the Torah, is God's initial plans to bring his people to the point where they would then be ready for when he himself steps onto the stage in the form of Jesus, the Messiah. That they would be ready to worship him with their hearts rather than just outwardly through symbols and sacrifices. But they can't go from here to here in one jump. God leads them along. And that's what we have in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is God leading. Now it zigs and it zags because the instrument, you know, God talks about in, in the Bible, he calls them stiff-necked. You stiff-necked people. And we talk about how that's an agricultural metaphor. When there's a donkey, his neck is stiff. If you have a donkey and you want to lead him somewhere, if his neck is pliable, he'll go where you want. If his neck is stiff, everything you do is a struggle. Everything's a battle. Everything's a fight. I walk my dog every night to make him use the bathroom. There's a big rock that I walk him to. He goes to the rock, he sniffs it, does his business, we walk back. 
he'll stiffen and he'll want to go that way. He'll want to smell what the other dog has been up to. Want to see? I, I, I think of it as how top dogs read the newspaper as they sniff what's been going on in the neighborhood with all the smells. But he'll stiffen his neck. He'll, you know, and, and he's a little dog. He's 20 pounds. But I'll be like, come on, we got to go this way. He'll just stiffen and look at me. And of course, I'm not the best owner, so I'll give in and go that way. But that's the image that God paints of Israel as a people so many times in the Bible. Is there a stiff-necked people? He wants to lead them. And there's this, but we're used to this. God, we're used to this way. We want it this way. And God's saying, I want you this way. So all of the Old Testament history is going to be an unfolding of that. However, in Exodus, where we're ending today, Moses has been given this pattern of how to build this thing called the tabernacle, which will then one day become the temple. And the patterns are set, and the people build it. We saw last week God instills his spirit. He gives them wisdom. He gives them the ability to do it. They build it. And then we come to chapter 40, the very end of the book, verse 20, excuse me, verse 17. It says, so the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. A year after they've come out of slavery. First day, the new beginning, the tabernacle was set up. This little portable mini Mount Sinai was set up in the middle of all of the people camped around it. And so, verse 18, when Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, set up the posts. He spread the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded. He took the testimony, that's the, the actual Torah, the stone tablets that God had written on version 2, because the first ones were broken with the people's rebellion, but God graciously restored his covenant after repentance and put everything back on track. So Moses takes that, that testimony, that covenant, the copies of the contract, puts it into the ark, attached the poles to the ark, put the cover on top of it, then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded it. And that verb that's used there, shielding curtain, that's the purpose of the curtain inside the tabernacle. It was to shield, but it wasn't to shield the ark from the people. It was to shield the glory of God, His holiness, from the people. In other words, the holiness was a consuming fire that would come outwards, if we want to use that image. So God's not protecting Himself from the people. He's protecting the people from Himself. Because at His core, who He is at His truest is the purity and the holiness of a raging fire that burns away all impurity. And he knows that his people, as they stand in their normal everydayness, can't stand in the presence of pure holiness without being overcome. So he sets this elaborate system in place that will remain in place for centuries until on that one faithful day, around 33 AD, when the sky gets dark and the earth shakes, the curtain of the temple will be torn from top to bottom on the day of the crucifixion. And that's the theological statement that the gospel writers are drawing on. They're drawing on the significance of these events. So anyway, getting back, 
and wrap it up. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, set the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. This was to be a perpetual reminder that God desires fellowship. That's why it's a meal. There's the, that's why, you know, the symbol that, that, that's used by Christians and Jews of a meal is super important. That's why we meet here in a restaurant. We have a meal together. Eating together in the presence of God is a sacred thing. It always has been. You know why Jesus ate with people all the time? It wasn't because he was hungry. It wasn't because he was, you know, a glutton. He was accused of being that. But it was because he realized sharing a meal with someone is sharing life with someone. You get to know someone as you sit around the table. And especially in the ancient Near East, where they didn't use forks and knives at the table. You used your hands. You shared vessels. You shared implements. It was a very intimate thing. It was a very friendly thing. It was something that we in our fast food nation have kind of gotten away from. But it's super important. So that's what God set at the, at the center of his worship. Is there this meal that they share. So then, going on. He placed the lampstand at the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded him. So God's eternal light would always be shining, symbolizing his presence. He placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain, burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded him. We looked about that a few weeks ago. The incense, the priests, the workers in the tabernacle were to literally smell different than everybody else because they had been in the presence of God in the tabernacle. Uh, verse 29, he set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded. Get into that next week, or next time we meet, sorry. Verse 30, he placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing and Moses and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting and approached the altar as the Lord commanded. So his workers would be by holiness, they would be washed, they would be physically cleansed before they worked in the service of God, emphasizing that there has to be, at this stage in Israel's history, an intermediary. They can't just walk into God's presence normal. There has to be a symbolic washing, a cleansing, right? All these themes should be circulating in your head as you think about New Testament ideas and things like baptism and these things that we take for granted. Then, the last part, 39, Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The heaviness of the Lord. That's what that term in Hebrew, kavod, means heaviness. It means a felt presence. It means something that's so overpowering, so tangible, so fearsome that you can't approach it. The glory of the Lord. God, the God of all universe, the God who's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, any other omni word you want to think of, he's all of that. But he decides to condescend, to dwell in some way, shape, or form. He's still the God of all heavens. He still fills the universe and beyond. He's still everything. But in some tangible way, he says to his people, in covenant means I live in your neighborhood. I come to dwell with you. And that word dwell is literally tabernacle. I come to pitch my tent in your camp. So he does. And it's like Moses now. Moses built the tabernacle with Bezalel, Holy Out, and the workers. And even Moses can't enter into it. Why? The builder 
people. And he and he alone determines who can come in and dine with him. And that's going to be the system that the entire book of Leviticus is going to explore. Because the people set up the tabernacle, God told them how to build it, but he didn't tell them exactly what to do in it. So now there's going to be a whole other book of the Bible called Leviticus, where he shows, he teaches the Levite priests, the sons of Aaron, Moses' tribe, he's going to teach them, okay, this is how you use this thing. Right? I've given you the keys to the car. Here's how you drive it. I've, 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 you know, we built this system, this tabernacle. I'm dwelling here. This is the system in place. Here's how it's going to work. And all of it is going to be a, a huge object lesson in showing ancient Israel what it meant to be a normal human sinful people who live camped out around the holy, unapproachable, glorious God of all creation who has decided to come and to, in a certain specific way, dwell in their midst. All because of a promise he made to Abraham in Genesis. All because of a promise that he made to Eve in the beginning. That the, 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 the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That it would be a human from which the defeat of Satan would come. And that human would come from the seed of Abraham, the family of Abraham. And that human would be the Messiah of this particular people from Abraham, the Israelites. And so within that is the unfolding of everything that comes in the Old Testament. These promises that go on, that cycle through. So when you're reading the Old Testament, it's so tempting to read it like most Christians do. Pull a bit here, a bit there. I like the story of Jonah. I like the story of Joshua and the walls falling. I like the whole thing of Ruth. She's Story. I'm going to read these, but not putting them in place and seeing the flow, the redemptive flow of the story. Because it's telling one story from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is telling one story. How can God make right what humans put wrong in the beginning and do it through humanity and do it in a way that leads to something even greater than what was lost in the fall? That's the big picture of the Bible. We swore one of the DVD resources I have, shameless plug, uh, Bible for the rest of us. We walk through, this is a the DVD course on how to read the Bible as a whole. And it's, we explore it in, in, in detail in 14 sessions where we walk through all the parts of the Bible. So even the weird parts, even the parts that people don't like to read, even the parts like Leviticus where people get bored and they stop reading usually around February of every year. They, January 1st, we read the whole Bible in a year. February, they get to Leviticus and they just give up because it's bored. Even that plays a key part in the overall story of God's workings with humanity. The problem is we treat, we tell people, the Bible's a great book, the Bible's a great book, just read it, just read it, just read it. And we don't exactly teach them how to read it. And that's the problem. And you just pick it up and people just thumb through, I like this verse, I don't like this verse, and it just becomes this no man's land of interpretation. You just read whatever you want into it. So what we're doing in this study, this outreach of Disciple Dojo and Ruth's Chris, is specifically to give the people that come here, you, the ability to navigate your way through this library of books that we know of as the Bible, including all the boring parts that most people skip. 
because they're just weird and don't make any sense. So that to say, a teaser, in two weeks when we're going to start, we're going to do what we've been doing this year in Exodus, we're going to do for Leviticus. Now Leviticus is shorter, so we'll probably finish before the end of the year, and then we'll keep going. We'll move on and we'll see, but I want you to see, my desire for this study is for you to see the unfolding of the big picture of what God's doing in the world, because what that does is that will give you the foundation to then go back to your job, to go back to your home, to back to your family, back to your school, whatever you're doing, you have a foundation in place that says, this is what God's doing in the world. How can I be part of this? How can I be part of putting back to right what went wrong in Eden? How can I be part of what Jesus is doing with the kingdom of the world, or the kingdom of heaven, shining into the kingdom of the world? So things that we talk about here, I don't do a lot of application because that's the, that's the Spirit's role. The Spirit's role is to take what you read in this text and apply it into your life. What did I read today? How does that inform the decisions I'm going to make for today? How can I make decisions in a way that honors the God of Israel who did all of this to bring his people out of slavery so that the whole world would know that he is the one true God and the fellowship between God and man that is so broken and fractured to be restored. That's our mission. We're all part of it. We're all somewhere within the narrative. So over this holiday season, as we think about, you know, Advent and the birth of Jesus and, the, and all of this stuff, I want you to note, as you're going to your church services, as you're singing Christmas carols, all of this, I want you to pay special attention to the Exodus imagery in Christmas. Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And when you talk about things like light being uh, light to the darkness, uh, redemption being redeemed, uh, uh, you know, every, all the imagery that Jesus uses throughout his ministry. When you get to Easter, think of the Passover. Remember the coming out of Egypt. Remember Mount Sinai. All of these images, you'll be amazed at how it permeates all these things that most people don't even realize. It's just part of tradition. That being said, it is tradition that we end on time, and it's one o'clock exactly. So, we've got leftover food. Please take some. Uh, have a great holidays, great new year. No more meeting for two weeks. All right? We'll see you back here in January. Come hungry. Bring friends. Everyone's welcome. Make a new friend today before you leave. And uh, we'll see you in the new